0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. My special guest today is Zach O'Malley Greenberg. He's a senior editor here at Forbes who covers brilliantly the entertaining field and the media field. Zach is author of four books, including a brand new one coming out Tuesday, March 10th. It's called A-List Angels, How a Band of Actors, Artists, and Athletes Hacked Silicon Valley. In it, Zach reports on a new trend that's helping celebrities go from just being rich to truly wealthy.
1: You know, for the first time really in the history of fame, artists now have the ability to take their audience with them, whether it's through something like Patreon or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. So it's, it's a new frontier, I think, for entertainment.
0: I'll talk to Zach about the Hollywood investors from his book in a moment. But now, what's ahead? Well, of course, the big news is about the virus. A lot of uncertainty, but of course, that is overhanging, the presidential race, where in recent days, amazing things have happened. Who would have thought that the Democrats who pride themselves on youth, on diversity, would end up with a race with two old men, one 77, the other 78. So there are more primaries coming. This is a race that we haven't seen really the kind since 1976 when Ronald Reagan, former California governor, challenged an incumbent president, Gerald Ford. That race went right to the convention. This one looks to be the same. We have several primaries this week. The big one that everyone is going to be watching on Tuesday is Michigan. Bernie carried that state narrowly against Hillary Clinton in the primaries of 2016. But Joe Biden is given a chance. Especially with Bernie Sanders' attacks on companies, workers don't always feel like they're working for corrupt companies. So Joe Biden could pull out a win here. Another state, Washington State, home of the People's Republic of Seattle. This should be prime Bernie territory. We'll see how well he does here. Other states include Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, North Dakota... And their curiosity contest coming up. We all know the one last week, American Samoa, carried by Michael Bloomberg. Not a big enough victory to keep him in the race. But the curiosities this week, the Northern Mariana Islands. Yes, they send delegates to the convention not to be outdone. The U.S. Virgin Islands is having a Republican caucus on Tuesday. And Guam is having a Republican contest as well this week. Now, in the economic news front, obviously, everyone is anticipating bad things are going to be happening because of the disruptions from the coronavirus. But there are two big things coming this week. One, of course, is what's happening to prices. The Consumer Price Index comes out on Wednesday. The Producer Price Index, which is usually a forerunner of consumer price increases or decreases, comes out Thursday. But the big, big, big one this week everyone is going to be looking at is initial jobless claims. If they start going up, it means the economy is starting to slow. If it remains around the 200,000 or so, that means the economy is still holding up. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach O'Malley Greenberg, whose new book A-List Angels hits the stores and online on Tuesday, March 10th. You won't want to miss it. My special guest today is Zach O'Malley Greenberg. He's the senior editor at Forbes for Media and Entertainment. He has a new book out. It's called A-List Angels, how a band of actors, artists, and athletes hacked Silicon Valley. Before we get to this fascinating book, a little bit about Zach, the age of 14, He was reviewing, I think, video games, what was in Boy's Life? That's right. And he's a movie star. Tell us about the early
1: 1990s. I I must get your autograph before this is over. (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, in a former life, I was a child actor. Uh, I retired at age, uh, I think, seven or eight after playing the title role in a film called Lorenzo's Oil, it came out in the early 90s. You were and Lorenzo. I was Lorenzo alongside Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon. And um, after that, I auditioned for Star Wars for the role of Anakin and didn't get it. And uh, and then I called it quits. So, so here I am. I, I picked the only uh, industry that is uh, more uncertain and less lucrative uh, than acting. So <laughs> <laughs> here we are.
0: And you uh, went to Yale. And now in this book, you talk about how— uh, Artists. In other words, it's Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And uh, the point you make in the, the thesis is, is Hollywood traditionally was interested in cash. Silicon Valley equity is the name of the game. And getting the two to realize and come together, lots of ups and downs. Uh, this is a family station podcast, but nonetheless, I'll quote from your book, Chris Rock, who said,
1: I'll just use the F word, F, rich, let's get wealthy. You, that was actually Jay-Z. Jay-Z, okay. And and Chris Rock said, uh, Shaquille O'Neal is rich. The guy who signs his check is wealthy.
0: So uh, let's start first your distinction between rich and wealthy.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think you got to go back to the very beginning of the monetization of fame. So talking early 20th century. You you go back and give the history of uh, Babe Ruth as the only one who really made big bucks. and in... Yeah, I mean, if you want to go way, way back, you know, uh, we can talk, you know, um, Lord Byron and, you know, the invented, invention of the printing press and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think, you know, the, the modern famous person, modern celebrity was invented really uh, in the early 20th century. Babe Ruth was really doing it well. Um, a lot of movie stars though, you know, a lot of athletes, musicians didn't really have it so good. Um, they were essentially employees, they were paid like wage laborers. Um, and at the time, you know, if you, if you go back and you look at even the biggest movie stars of the day, uh, they were not getting paid more than say a skilled professional like a doctor or lawyer. And in fact, um, I believe it was James Cagney in the thirties. Threatened to leave acting and go into medical school at Columbia. And uh, his studio said, "Okay fine, 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 we'll we'll increase your salary. Uh, you know, it, but at that point in time, the two were were comparable enough that it was a valid threat. And in
0: terms of uh, equity, you had some outliers like William Shatner with Priceline taking equity instead of cash. And uh, one of the things that Hollywood had to learn, you describe in the book as patience, but you make the point that mammoth institutions and a handful of high net worth individuals were the ones who got the good new deals on these startups. Most would fail, as you point out. But by golly, when you hit, you had wealth. You weren't just rich. So uh, how describe how it came about. You talk about the 1980s was a good starting point where suddenly they
1: realized there's more than just getting quick cash. Yeah, the 1980s were, were this turning point. You had, you know, in the wake of Kurt Flood uh, kind of kicking off free agency with Major League Baseball. Um, you know, you had Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Kurt, some of these Kurt, big Kurt stars. Kurt Flood,
0: for those who don't know, baseball had a situation where the team dictated your salary. You could not negotiate with another team. You might hold out, but that was it. And Kurt Flood destroyed his career— by saying, I'm not going to uh, go along with what they called the reserve clause. And eventually the
1: court sided with them. And, you know, that really had a ripple effect, I think, throughout entertainment um, and not just sports. So suddenly you had people like Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, realizing their own value, um, negotiating not only their deals with their primary employers, either a record label or a sports team, but starting to do things outside of that. Uh, for for Michael Jordan, obviously, it was those Air Jordan sneakers and his per sneaker royalty. Uh, Michael Jackson had a shoe deal uh, that many people don't know about. He had a Pepsi endorsement deal that was the biggest of its time, and uh, famously invested outside of the entertainment business um, in in a bunch of assets, including the Beatles' publishing catalog, which was a almost Warren Buffett esque feat. Uh, buying it for $47.5 million and um, eventually selling his share of it uh, post-mortem for $750 million plus, I believe. Probably get more today. Yeah. And uh, in terms of uh,
0: talking about that, you uh, focus on a number of individuals, but uh, three biggies, Ashton Kutcher, famous actor, two and a half men among his credits, Great, great, uh, great show. Shaquille O'Neal and Nas, the Rapper. You mentioned other actresses and actresses, Jessica Alba, Madonna, Justin Bieber. Did a cover story on him. You call him a venture capitalist, age 17. So uh, you make the point that in the book that it's one thing to do an endorsement, but if it's something with your name on it, your brand, it does so much better. Walk us through how, how this came about where Hollywood finally woke up equity as king.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think I think it's worth noting that Hollywood spent the better part of a century fighting to not have to work on spec or for low wages, right? And so by the 80s and 90s, you had these big stars who were, you know, very happy to be taking multi-million dollar paychecks for, for their films. But, um, you know, when the idea of investing uh you know in a a brand that they were associating themselves with came up and and the only compensation was on the back end it kind of smacked of this you know early 20th century studio system exploitation kind of thing and um and and the reaction was kind of you know no we, we don't really want to do that we don't want to associate with businesses who are going to compensate us in this way we want guarantees and in silicon valley you know as the sort of first web bubble came up, uh, the situation was, you know, you take little to no salary up front in exchange for this monstrous payday down the line. And it wasn't really until um, after the first dot-com bubble crashed and, uh, you know, and, and kind of had this humbling moment that um, the next generation was of celebrities got early 2000s. Into, that's right. And uh, 50 Cent the rapper was was really one of the first players to to recognize the value here. So, a company called Vitamin Water came to him and uh, and said, "Hey, would you like to to be our brand ambassador? Uh, we can't really pay you very much, but you know, we might give you some equity." And Fifty said, "I'm ready to invest in myself." He took the equity. He created his own Fifty Cent Formula Fifty Vitamin Water brand. And within a few years, um, Vitamin Water's parent company had been sold to uh, Coca-Cola for over $4 billion. Fifty walked away with about $100 million. And that really opened the eyes to a lot of the entertainment world uh, as to the benefits of taking equity instead of cash. And Ashton Kutcher was first and foremost among those who, who watched that and decided they were going to do something about it.
0: Uh, let's talk about him. you uh, He's one of the center f- figures in your book. Uh, some say he's even a better venture capitalist than than actor.
1: Walk, walk us through that. You know, he's one of those guys who just happens to have started out as an actor. If you know he hadn't had uh, the the look of a movie star, perhaps he would have you know gone directly into something else. He could have been a star, and, and this is what multiple sources say in the book. In whatever industry he was in, if he had gone you know into corporate America, if he had gone straight into VC. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that that he realized was there were all these startups in Silicon Valley in, you know, let's say the late uh, aughts that were hungry for users. And Ashton was the first person to a million followers on Twitter. It was a race between Ashton and Ellen DeGeneres, another startup investor. And, uh, and Ashton realized that a lot of these companies would be very interested in in letting him invest early or maybe even giving him free equity uh, if he would help raise awareness of their brand. That's how it started. And so you saw him starting to get into um, – he got into Skype very early, Foursquare, uh, a couple of these early Web 2.0 companies and started doing very well. And you point out uh, the fame helped, but also
0: he learned to put together a network.
1: That's right. Um Ashton started connecting with a lot of the power players in Silicon Valley and, um, you know, really developed what he kind of refers to as a syndicate of investors. And, you know, again, in one of the ways that Silicon Valley is different from Hollywood, um, there's more opportunity for collaboration uh, in terms of investing in Silicon Valley than there is, you know, like, let's say in the record business where you're trying to sign an artist away from another label in this case, um, different venture capital firms might fight to lead the round, but different angel investors can come together and be part of the same uh, fundraising round. So that's kind of what Ashton realized, and he started looping in more people in Silicon Valley and more people in Los Angeles and, um, and really building this network for himself that generated all kinds of deal flow. So the opportunity to invest in some of the companies that he later would, Uber, Airbnb, Spotify, et cetera. And uh, Shaquille O'Neal, how did, how did he see the light? So interestingly enough, Shaq was another vitamin water investor. Uh, he also cashed in when that company got sold to Coca-Cola, a few people know. Um, but Shaq is, is funny. I mean, he's a he's a huge personality. Uh, you see him all over the place on, on TV, in commercials and what have you. But uh, a lot of people don't realize that he was one of the very earliest investors um, in terms of celebrities getting into startups. And he invested in Google before it went public. So this was, we're talking, you know, in the in mid to late 90s. And I interviewed him for the book and he told me the story of how it came about. Very unusual. He was at a restaurant playing with some kid who came up to him, um, you know, oh, you're Shaquille O'Neal, I'm a big fan. And uh, the kid's dad came over and and basically said, you know, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. One thing led to another And, uh, Shaq was invited to invest in Google before it went public. And, um, you know, it's just been an amazing, uh, return as you could imagine. Even if you had gotten in on day one of the IPO, you would have done really well on Google. You got in before that. And, and, you know, even if you'd only invested, uh, like, let's say, a a low to mid five figure sum, which is sort of generally what most of these stars do, um, you know, you're looking at a... (laughs) probably order of magnitude uh in, in terms of a return and uh nas the the rapper a- another great example and and in fact I think if you look at the uh the totals nas and Ashton Kutcher have the most venture investments of of any celebrity uh, just in terms of you know total uh, number of companies that they have a stake in the uh, though you know, not clear in terms of overall value because it's it's a little harder to calculate that. But Nas is somebody who grew up um, in the housing projects, uh, the Queensbridge houses in, in, um, over in Queens, uh, New York, and, you know, came out of, of that milieu in the early 90s, is considered one of the best rappers of all time, but always trailed his musical peers like Jay-Z, uh, for example, in terms of um, wealth Jay-Z is hip-hop's first billionaire, uh, and for the longest time, Nas didn't really show any interest in, you know, the financial side of things. But then he met a thirty under-30 30 alum, a manager by the name of Anthony Sala. Um, again, you know, in the early Web 2.0 days. And, uh, and Anthony recognized that Nas had this incredible amount of credibility as an artist, and, you know, that, that he could come in and, and really provide value to some of these companies. And so one of his first was a company called Genius, which used to be called Rap Genius, and uh, it was founded by three Yaleys who loved hip-hop, and they wanted to have, you know, um, a sort of a centralized database for lyrics where you could annotate and analyze, and Nas came on and invested, uh, along with Ashton Kutcher and some others, and um, he became the first verified rapper uh, on this platform, or one of the first verified rappers, and, and he, what, he, what he really did was lend credibility to this kind of upstart site. ...created value, uh, which then was realized in um, in the equity that that he already uh, controlled, you know, kind of increasing in value. Kind of synergy. Yeah. <laughs> S with a dollar sign, yes. <laughs> and uh, Troy Carter had an interesting career. Troy Carter is another, another fascinating name um, who I talked to a bunch for this book and, you know, gained a lot of fame for managing Lady Gaga through her rise and um, up, you know, up into superstardom. But one of the things that he was always very clued into was this venture capital community um, and, and the sort of same syndicate that Ashton Kutcher, Guy Siri, and all these characters were involved in. And, um, you know, Troy grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, he didn't have a lot of money growing up. Uh, he wanted to be a rapper, realized pretty quickly that he wasn't very good at that. So immediately went into other aspects of show business. He worked as an intern for Diddy. He uh, he did all kinds of different things um, and and eventually ended up managing Lady Gaga, which if you think about it in, you know, 08, 09, as social media was really coming into being, um, the biggest music stars at that moment were Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber. And as a result, those two stars and their managers... Uh, had access to all these companies that were suddenly very hungry for new users that were growing, um, you know, through through Twitter and through Facebook and such. And, um, you know, that generated a ton of deal flow. And um, certainly Troy Carter managing Gaga and Scooter Braun managing Justin Bieber were able to, to really take advantage of some of that uh, to get into that space for themselves and for their clients.
0: And... Uh... You also touch on the importance uh, where they realize the importance of platforms.
1: That's right. So, um, you know, those acts, Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, et cetera, uh, and the managers around them, I think they realize that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera— they became popular in large part because there were artists like Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga there that people wanted to engage with. Of course, if you ask the tech folks, they'll say the platforms became big because it was great technology. Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber just happened to benefit, uh, you know, by, by the existence of these platforms. Uh, but if you go back to the Hollywood side of it, the, there was this prevailing thought of, we missed our shot to get in on the platforms themselves. And, A lot of the action um, subsequent to the late aughts, uh, you know, so in the early 2010s, was really about how do we as entertainers, we as athletes get in and start to own pieces of these platforms um, and to really fully leverage our fame to get equity and not just cash.
0: I also say artists are their own
1: network. Yeah. uh, You know, for the first time really in the history of fame, you know, Artists now have the ability to take their audience with them, whether it's through something like Patreon or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Um, You know, Justin Bieber, he's going to have those tens of millions of followers. I mean, if you look across all platforms, hundreds of millions of followers, regardless of what record label he signed with, regardless of if he disappears from... The news cycle for a couple of years. And at any moment, he can kind of go back and turn that on again and say, hey, hey guys, I'm back. Um, I have a tour coming out, I have an album coming out. Uh, you know, or he can kind of fall back on that sweet, sweet Spotify equity that he got very early on. Um, so it's it's a new frontier, I think, for entertainment and um, you know, having that ability to kind of turn it on or turn it off. I think it takes some of the pressure off a lot of these stars. Not that it's, you know, not that I wouldn't still characterize it as a a high-pressure profession, but the ability to take the audience with you, it gives you a lot more freedom.
0: Well, what's ahead, listeners? Speaking of using social media to engage more deeply with your audience, this week I put out a call on Twitter and Facebook to solicit your questions. And guess what? Now, I'm going to answer some of them. This is a new segment we're calling Creatively. Steve Forbes answers your questions. Question one comes to us from Ken Hart, who asks Do we have any realistic chance of ever returning to a gold standard based currency? The answer is yes. We always do, and 3,000 years of history shows it. We go off it, we go back on it, because going off of it has never worked always get subprime economic performance over time. It's not going to be immediate because even if people desired to do it, they don't know how to do it. Now, I can help them out on that. I've got a couple of books on it, as do others. This is something that will evolve, but not overnight. Now, the next question is a more personal one, and it comes from Dale Helwig. Dale asks, what happened to many of the collections your father put together? I attended an exhibit of for the Forbes Fabrizette collection in Lugano, Switzerland, a number of years ago, and still have fond, vivid memories of the event. So what happened to my father's collections? Well, some were sold at auctions, some were sold to interested people who wrote in. My father always felt, don't hoard it. If you don't have a keen interest in it, let others enjoy what you enjoyed in putting it together. So my siblings and I are collectors. We have our own interests. I like collecting books including those of Winston Churchill and the novelist John Goldsworthy. My brothers have other interests, including one who collects some kinds of old furniture. I don't even remember the name of it, but it's a big deal for him. Another brother collected for years comic books. My father's motorcycles mostly have been dispersed. I'm still too young to ride a motorcycle. The key thing is find something that interests you and then go for it. My father liked to say, you usually regret the things you don't try to do. So don't dream about it. Go for it. And finally, several of you have asked whether I'd consider another run for president. My children, grandchildren, and friends will be delighted to know the answer is no. I tried it twice. Now I'm an agitator. Things like tax simplification like the flat tax, having patients control medicine for the first time in decades. And how about a social security system especially for young people where you own your social security assets instead of depending on Washington politicians. So I'm pushing those issues. The older you get, the less you're inhibited about doing things you think need to be done. Thanks for sending us your questions. And please keep an eye on my Twitter and Facebook feeds for future calls. You might just end up in the next installment of Steve Forbes answers your questions. Now, We'll return to the second part of my interview with Zach O'Malley Greenberg, in which he shares a few of the lesser-known names and behind-the-scenes anecdotes of the Silicon Valley Hollywood romance. Stay with us. And uh, other players in the game. I'm surprised to read Michael Ovitz, who was a great agency guy had a terrible time in Disney, but uh, he was a player with some of these people.
1: That's right. You know, Michael Ovitz uh, made his name as the founder of CAA um, and was kind of this big Hollywood power broker. Um, he's actually somebody who who Ben Horowitz called in at various points as an advisor. And, um, you know, I'd say was another conduit between Hollywood and Silicon Valley in, in making that connection and helping both sides understand each other. And... Uh, People we might not know, uh,
0: Michael Yanover. Is that how you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, another CAA guy. Uh, basically, you know, again, one of these connectors between Southern California, Northern California, and um, you know, some of the deals that he worked on, uh, you know, included trying to woo um, YouTube folks, or the you know, to to try to create a like a, a more um, formal line of connection between these, you know, this platform that was starting to put out a ton of video and, and actual professional content creators that were over on the on the CAA side. And what he ended up doing um, after, you know, missing out on investing in YouTube itself was uh, teaming up with Will Farrell and some of his partners on a platform called Funny or Die, um, where the idea was that you would have actual professional Content creators making the videos. And so in the book, I get into some of the hilarious stories of this culture clash between Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, these interactions where the CAA folks are talking to Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell's people are like, well, what's the budget? Zero. Well, what about hair and makeup? Zero. How about licensing music? Zero. And, you know, we'll give you a handy cam. That's it. Just make something funny. And, and so kind of... Connecting that— He did that little girl. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. The The, uh, the landlord video uh, was one of the very early hits of Funny or Die. And people don't realize to this day, Will Ferrell and CAA uh, are both huge equity holders in that company. And, um, you know, that, that was definitely a, one of the early blueprints for, you know, what a collaboration could look like between Hollywood and Silicon Valley.
0: And uh, some other interesting people. Ron Conway, not a household name—
1: yeah, Ron Conway, outside of San Francisco, probably not a household name, um, but he was one of the people on the tech side who, who really decided, you know, there's something to be done here in joining the creative world, the athletic world, with the venture capital world. And uh, so a lot of the, the earliest investors were people who had a reason to be around San Francisco. Um, from MC Hammer, who's from the Bay Area, to uh joe montana who was a a pal of ron conway and you know i think one of the things that gets overlooked sometimes is just when you're at a certain status in society you tend to rub elbows with people who are who have that status as well and if you're joe montana and you're you know the star quarterback of the 49ers you're going to be at events with you know um venture people like ron conway and and you're going to chat and and you're going to talk business and and find ways into deals together. And and, uh, Ron Conway actually helped Joe Montana start becoming an investor in some of these companies, including Pinterest. And Joe Montana, although he doesn't get quite as much ink as somebody like Ashton Kutcher, these days anyway, is actually one of the more successful uh, seed stage celebrity investors out there. Um, you know, he has a, a company that's invested in several unicorns and uh, it made a, a pretty nice uh, um, lane for itself.
0: And unicorns, for those who may not know them, they are billion-dollar and up value. Unicorns,
1: decacorns, <clears throat> centicorns. It's gotten, it's gotten uh, pretty absurd out there.
0: <laughs> and uh, tell us about uh, – you had some interesting stories. Tell us about beats. Dr. Dre.
1: Yeah. Um, so beats beats was an interesting one because, you know, it, it wasn't sort of part of the, the core story of A-list angels, which is these investors, you know, plowing a little bit here or there into a startup and and making money off it. This was Dr. Dre saying, all right, I'm going to go into business and, and actually found my own headphone company. Um, with his pal Jimmy Iovine, who was at the time the head of Interscope Records. And uh, what they realized was that if you wanted to compete with Air Jordan, the best way was not to create another sneaker line. The best way was to create something that was a fashion accessory that had not ever been viewed as such. Headphones. $200 headphones. So they, in fact, instructed um, by, you know, their their uh, colleagues at Best Buy, for example, to tell the salespeople, you know, you're not debating Beats versus Bose. You're debating Beats versus Air Jordan. So that kid coming in with 200 bucks, I'm going to buy something that looks cool. Is it going to be these headphones or is it going to be those shoes? And, uh, And that's precisely what they did. And eventually Apple came in and bought the company for $3 billion. One of the things that Apple was really interested in was the streaming service that Beats had started, which later got folded into and and sort of became the core of Apple Music. Um, And I think it's fascinating to look at uh, hip-hop's three current wealthiest acts, which also happened to be the three wealthiest musicians in America, Jay-Z, Diddy, and Dr. Dre. All of them, tremendous entrepreneurs, figured out that what they really had to do with the streaming revolution was not, you know... Necessarily, just get their music up on these platforms. It was to own a piece of the platforms. So, Dr. Dre had his with Beats Music, which became Apple Music. Jay Z bought Tidal, and then Diddy actually invested in Spotify quite early. He was one of the many people in this uh, early round around the time that Spotify came to the U.S. Along with Ashton Kutcher, um, I believe Steve Ioki and several others mentioned in the book. Mentioned Steve
0: Ioki. Uh, you have an interesting story, uh, among other things, is interaction with his father, giving him advice on one of his early ventures. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so Steve Aoki's father was Rocky Aoki, founder of Benihana, uh, where I used to have all my birthday parties as a as a child. And Steve decided he wanted to do something totally different. He was going to be a DJ. But uh, eventually he he started to achieve a certain amount of fame, started getting investment opportunities. And one of them was a chance... To put money into a restaurant chain, a Korean barbecue joint in LA, and a lot of famous people were getting involved. Um, somebody from that '70s show who was not Ashton Kutcher, uh, and a bunch of other celebs. And Steve went to his dad and he said, "I think I, I think I want to do this. I think I want to invest some money here." And his dad said, "I don't even want to look at the contract. You're you're going to lose all your money." And Steve. Thought to himself, "Well, I'll show you." He invested anyway, and he lost all his money. So he he took a little bit of a break after that, but but pretty soon he realized that there was this other thing going on, where you could get into these startups that were you know taking longer and longer to go public, meaning that there were more and more profits to be realized in the meantime. Um, you know, uh, by any kind of investor that that would have access, and that access was really limited to these big venture capital firms and any celebrity who might find a way into it. So Steve Ioki managed to uh, get stakes in Spotify, um, Uber, Airbnb, and even SpaceX uh, just by lever- leveraging that fame and saying, you know, hey, I, I want to be a part of this. Um, and it's, it's kind of amazing if you think about it from um, the founder's perspective, right? It, it, it's a good deal on both ends if you're an entertainer you have an opportunity to invest in in some very promising company pre IPO, at a much with a much smaller check size than these giant venture capital firms, and if you're an entrepreneur or you know uh, the, the corporate structure of one of these businesses, it's not like you really have that much to lose because fifty thousand dollars from Steve Ioki, it just means somebody else is going to be investing $50,000 less. Maybe it means that Sequoia or some other giant VC company will, will be investing a little bit less in your company, but you've got them in anyway. You get the same amount of money raised and you get that extra push um, on social media. But I think not only that um, you, you have the ability then to lean on these celebs to make calls, to make introductions. And even if it's not something where you might think they would have a natural in. Um, they can be very helpful. So, for example, Joe Montana, one of his companies wanted an introduction to Snoop Dogg and Joe Montana called Snoop Dogg and Snoop Dogg picked up because Joe, Joe Montana is Joe Montana. And, uh, you know, it's it's those kinds of things that you can get those calls returned just by virtue of the name. You know, even if you're cold calling in a way that you can't if from, from most other investors.
0: Among the anecdotes, uh, relate the one rap genius Warren Buffett and Jay Z. Yeah,
1: so uh, the, there was a a moment when the founders of, of rap genius, uh, now called Genius, went to a party at Ben Horowitz's house, and they they ran into um, Mark Zuckerberg there. They took a photo with him, and one of the the founders of, of rap genius, who has since been sort of estranged from the company, he uh, he he posted online. Um, uh, an, an expletive that I think cannot be re- repeated a graphic expletive that cannot be repeated uh, on, on the air here. And it cost them a meeting with Jay Z. Uh, he bailed out. He was like, I'm not interested in, in dealing with these guys. So there, you know, there were a lot of the, these lessons got learned along the way, I think, um, by some of the founders and, you know, even with entertainers who are used to a lot of publicity, you have to be careful not to draw the wrong kind of publicity.
0: <laughs> right, Despite what they say. And, uh, and another interesting person was Jack Conte of uh, Patreon. One of these ideas that uh, you, for a few dollars, can uh, help a specific artist or uh, program.
1: Yeah. So Jack started out um, with his now wife uh, in this band called Pomplamoose, and they did popular covers of songs. There's grapefruit and, in French. And French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They spell a little different, but, uh, <laughs> you know, same idea. And... They discovered that they were immensely popular, but they really were not making any money off these videos because of the way the rate at which you, you the the rate at which you monetize YouTube spends YouTube plays. So yeah, the, the ads are uh, well below the minimum wage. Right, right. Uh, and so Jack decided, well, why don't I create my own? You know, and I think that's sort of the attitude of a lot of these characters in the book. Um, can I? Can I create something for myself? Can I make my own thing? Can I make my own better mousetrap? And, uh, and that's, that's basically what Jack did. He created Patreon. And it would the idea was to create a space where creators could say, you pay me a certain amount of money per month or per unit of content, and I will provide this for you. And you could have different tiers of participation. So maybe you pay me a dollar a month, and that gets you one song per month um but maybe you pay me $500 a month and i call you uh uh you know to wish you a happy birthday once a year and uh you know uh something like that <laughs> you know it goes all the way up in some cases to tens of thousands of dollars for private concerts and kind of really you know creates a way that you can monetize um this concept of superfans right if you have you know maybe you only have 10,000 fans but they're extremely dedicated and, you know, you'd rather have 10,000 fans spending, you know, $100 um, a month than—or uh, $100 a year, let's say, than you would have um, 100,000 fans spending $1 a month, right? Uh, that, that's kind of the attitude and and, and that's kind of the situation— that Conti found himself in and, and was really trying to, um, to boost with the creation of Patreon. But Patreon, you know, I think the reason that it ends up in this book is, you know, not necessarily cause it has celebrity investors, which now it does, but it started off with this one. I mean, he wasn't even really famous. This one, you know, musician, um, creating this platform and then going to Silicon Valley and getting funding to help build it out so that other creators, other entertainers could have that, same kind of experience um, and in monetizing their own work. And uh,
0: amazing energy. Uh, While he's doing Patreon, he's also uh, doing 100 music videos a year. That's phenomenal.
1: He's uh, one of the hardest working people in show business. And when I interviewed him for the book, he said it wouldn't really be possible without his business partners and his life partner, his wife, you know, managing sort of the other halves. Of, of both the band um, and the and the business as well.
0: And uh, one of the things he said uh, in terms of, uh, you point out, obviously, in that business, a lot of failures. Uh, you're not always going to hit a home run. And he said, you have to muster it up and just keep going.
1: Yeah, Jack talked to me a lot about just the, the slog of creating a startup. It's not easy. I mean, and it's not easy launching one's own career as a musician either. There's a lot of kind of overlap there. And he said, you know, um, specifically with creating a startup, there are moments when you just want to give up and you're just, you're getting hacked. You're getting, you know, complaints, you know, people are writing unflattering things about you and, and you're sitting there and you're doing your best and you're trying to learn on the go and make it work. And, and it's just about picking yourself up every time and doing it all over again, which I think is kind of the the entrepreneur story in general, right? Whether you're an entrepreneur in a traditional business sense or you're an entrepreneur as a as a musician, uh, you know, where you're your own business, you just have to pick yourself up and, and go and do the thing again. And like Jay-Z likes to say, a loss and a loss, it's a lesson. What can you learn from that mistake? What can you learn from that obstacle that you overcame.
0: Uh, The interaction between the two worlds, Uh, you point out it's not been smooth. You've had uh, when the bus came, everyone, a lot of them just went back to to their old ways. What's the state today? Is it a maturation stage where they know these things happen or is it the kind of thing, well, he's doing it, she's doing it, I'm going to do it. Oh, they lost money, I'm out.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that um, certainly, in California, uh, it has become something of an efficient market. All of the celebrities know where to look, you know, to get teamed up with some of these startups, and vice versa. But where the interesting opportunities are now, um, I think, are are you know in in other markets, uh, you know, and with smaller celebrities, let's say the B list angels, there are plenty of very early stage startups that would love to have a celebrity on board, um, but they don't really know where to find the right celebrities. And, you know, conversely, if you're a 20-year-old, a you know, football player or musician, and you're, you're just becoming famous for for your craft, you know, you're just kind of navigating that. You probably don't know where to look um, for, you know, these investment opportunities. So uh, th- there, I think there is definitely still, you know, some some ground to be covered there. And it's also worth noting, of course, you know, um, major caveat in, in this whole trend is nobody's saying that, that entertainers should go out there and invest 100% of their earnings in, in, you know, in risky startups. And we're talking 5 to 10% of, of a portfolio max um, because entertainers do have very, you know, unpredictable careers. And startups can be very unpredictable. And in fact, most of them fail. Um, it's just if you, if you invest... A little bit in enough of them you're more likely to hit really big on one and you know one grand slam can make up for 10 strikeouts uh, it, it's not baseball where where you know you're gonna be kicked out of the league if you're betting um, if you're betting 100 you know you, you want to have um, you just want to have more irons in the fire but they have learned the lesson that uh, as a whole startups are better than endorsements That's right. I mean, if, you know, if you have an opportunity um, to get an ownership stake in something, you know, it's going to create it's going to start to create that kind of generational wealth that um, that, you know, that Chris Rock was talking about. Right. And it's kind of funny looking back on that Chris Rock quote about, you know, Shaq's rich. The guy who signs his checks is wealthy. Well, now Shaq's wealthy. Shaq is, you know, sent a millionaire many times over. Um, and and one of the ways he got there was through these investments in startups.
0: And uh, what changes do you see coming? You've seen a lot in the last 20 years. Uh, well, what are the next big things?
1: Yeah, give, well, give us an advanced look. Yeah, I think we're just now starting to kind of see the fruits of, of these labors, right? Um, these investments are finally starting to pay off. Nas, uh, at age 40, I believe, had his highest earning year ever, uh, in in 2018 or 2019, I think you're in $40 million. Jay-Z became a billionaire, the first billionaire in the music world. Um, and I think we're going to start to see a lot more of those kinds of things as some of these deals begin to percolate. I mean, if you look at Ashton Kutcher, when we put him on the cover of Forbes in 2016, he had amassed a um, fund that was worth a quarter billion dollars, not all his it was you know mostly other investors but you know he was getting his share of that and of course he has his own private angel investment so a lot of these companies you know it takes 10 years for them to go public for them to get bought out for them to become profitable something like that so you know this phenomenon is only about 10 years old maybe a little more so we're just now starting to see the returns of that and i think there's going to be even more in the coming years
0: Zach, thank you very much. The book is A-List Angels, How a Band of Actors, Artists, and Athletes Hacked Silicon Valley. Did very well at it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zach O'Malley Greenberg, senior editor here at Forbes and author of the brand new book, A-List Angels. You can pick up a copy on Tuesday, March 10th, either at your favorite bookstore or online. But for now, my Reads of the Week. One comes from Andrew McCarthy. He writes in Commentary. You can find it on CommentaryMagazine.com. McCarthy's story is entitled The Progressive Prosecutor Project. He talks about how and why the nation's crime busters, usually district attorneys, are becoming criminal enablers. What he's talking about is how more and more in cities like Philadelphia or Seattle or even New York, where they banned bail for most uh, people... Crime is going up because prosecutors feel they just don't want to prosecute these things. They have a political agenda. Sobering reading. Another one, this is one I wrote earlier in the week. It's entitled Jack Welch, Managerial Genius Who Made One Disastrous Mistake. It's on Forbes.com. Jack Welch ran General Electric in the latter part of the 20th century. He turned it into a nice industrial company, into the most valuable country on earth. But his fatal mistake was he picked the wrong successors. GE had a number of people capable of running that company, but Jack didn't pick the right one. And General Electric went from a mighty colossus, envied and admired by the whole world of business, into one that has fallen apart, a mere shadow of what it once was. And this gets to something very important, and that is nothing stays the same. So those who fear our high-tech biggies today, chill out. The markets always bring big companies down to size one way or the other. People don't stay the same, and people are markets. That's the lesson of GE. Today's success is not tomorrow's success. No guarantee of that. Certainly not in the world of business. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.